Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Yuel? I'm doing well. I've been reading up on a new phenomenon on the internet. If I said to you the words, let's go, Brandon, would that mean anything to you? Nope. <laughs> so, so me neither. Me neither until like yesterday. Apparently, this is code used by anti-Joe Biden people to mean fuck Joe Biden. And and it's like everywhere. Like I saw a clip of a Republican member of the House using it on the House floor. Um, there's a Southwest Airlines pilot who apparently said it over the intercom and is now, I guess, getting in trouble. Um, so yeah, you should keep an eye out for it. See if it pops up. Interesting. Well, now I really feel like I'm um, I'm in like my own bubble. You know, this is just like you're, more evidence. You're in the the blue my bubble silo. and. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's why you need me to keep you informed of what everybody else is up to. Uh, I got an email from a student who works for the um, Alabama uh, newspaper, the Crimson White, the other day, and it said that they wanted my expertise on internet memes like uh, No Bones Day. Do you know about No Bones Day? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was I was told about this by like a colleague on a Zoom call, and then the next day I read about it in the New York Times. So which is so I'm clearly I have my finger on the pulse here. Well, I didn't because I got this email from someone asking about my expertise on these kinds of things, and I was like, I don't even know what that meme is. So. <laughs> Yeah. But I agreed to be interviewed. Obviously. I mean, what are you going to say? No, because you're totally unqualified. Come on. I feel like we're foreshadowing the this uh, today's topic. Yes, exactly. Um, we're going to be talking about causal inference today, a, a topic that, as you'll see, neither one of us has any formal training in. Um, but but before we do that, we got to talk about beers, man. What are you drinking? Oh, so check this out. Mickey would be proud of me today. Look at my giant beer. Damn, that is a big ass fucking can of beer. Yeah, it's um, I think it's two and a half beers. Um, and it's from my favorite brewery, uh, Druid City Brewing Brewing Company in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is where I live. Um, and this is their Moonlighter IPA. Wow, is that how much beer is in that can? Actually, does it say? Uh, I should definitely know this. They just told me the answer to that. What's like one? What's one beer? Uh, 12 ounces. Okay. Oh, here it is. 32, 32 ounces. 32 ounces. Wow. Yeah, not bad. It is It is an enormous can. It's not only tall, it's also very wide. So it actually looks kind of hard to pick up. Uh -huh. um, just from a like user interface perspective, I feel like there might be some problems with this design. Yeah, I also saw him make the can. So it's like kind of fun because they pour the beer into the can and then they seal the top. So I have like new Holy insight into how shit. aluminum cans are created. Man. All right. New episode topic. <laughs> aluminum cans. Wait, I also have something besides the beer. So I got Chinese food today um, and I have a fortune cookie. So I thought Ooh, I could are we open gonna my open fortune this? cookie on air. On air. All right. Well, I hope it's auspicious. Do you, do you want to do it now? Yeah, sure. Okay, my fortune says, your personality is fueled by the fascination you feel for life. Wow. That's that's a, I would nice. say that's dead on. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, it's a nice compliment. Secondly, I would say it's accurate. Thank you. I wish Be you excellent. had a fortune. I do too. I wish you had told me we were doing fortunes. I could have tried to get a fortune cookie. Maybe next week. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. Uh, so I have, uh, let me grab it here. Um, I have another beer from this uh, French brewery that I'm sort of able to pronounce. Uh, L'Espace. Uh, I, I did the U wrong. I was saying like public and it's more like, yeah, public. I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a, those sound the same to me. Who the fuck knows? French. Um, it's, it's a beer de Cirque and it's a goes IPA, which you don't normally see those two going together. So no, I have not tried that combination before. Me neither, but we're going to find out right now on air, whether it's any good. All right, pop this thing open. Try not to spill any on myself. I can't tell whether it's more awkward to drink this with one hand or two hands. I, I try it with two. Try it with two. <laughs> you really, you look like a small child. <laughs> <laughs> how's the how's the beer though? It's great. Yeah, big fan. Excellent. Mm -hmm. 
Mine is, I'll be honest, a little weird because it's got like both the bitterness of an IPA and the sourness of the goes, and it's just like it clashes a bit. Does it is does it taste salty? Are goes salty? Um, I don't normally think of them as salty, but let let me try. It does have a little of what you might describe as saltiness to it huh. up front. <laughs> yeah, wow, it's got a whole mess of different flavors, sort of like <laughs> fighting it out in my mouth. And <laughs> the can is sort of power clashy, so I guess that sort of makes sense. It is. It is. It's very thematically consistent. Oh, it's a circus tent. That's uh, what it is. It's got these stripes. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. A listener suggested that we should set up a profile on Untapped. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna try. I'm gonna try and do that. Um, listeners can look in the show notes to see the link if I manage that. Um, but so we could we should track and rate the beers that we drink, right? Sounds great. Yeah. 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 There's been demand. Um, Okay, so what I what we wanted to talk about today, um, there is a paper that was sort of like kicking around Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, that's actually a bit older. I believe it's from two thousand eight, and and this paper purports to show um, that if you win a Nobel Prize, then you live longer. Um, and they they claim that this is a causal effect, right? That's mm-hmm. that's their argument. Um, and I, I, I do want to actually talk about the details of this paper, but uh, I thought that it, it, it was sort of an interesting illustration of how economics and psychology sort of do things differently. I'll, I'll say what I mean by that in a minute. Um, and so I thought we could talk about the kind of just more general stuff around that first before we like dive into the details of the paper itself and whether we find it convincing. So, you know, I, I think that it is unusual still in psychology to see people make explicit causal claims from non-experimental data. So in other words, data where the researcher didn't randomly assign people to get some sort of treatment or not. Um, And that's something that economists feel much more comfortable doing. So these data obviously um, are non-experimental, right? People aren't randomly assigned to get a Nobel or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the uh, people writing the paper, both economists, um, they're very upfront about, well, we're going to do X, Y, and Z things to draw causal conclusions from this non-experimental data, which as a psychologist, you know, I just feel like you don't see that often and mm-hmm. and we sort of have it beaten into us that that's like not okay would you, would you say that's accurate yeah definitely it's interesting like the timing of this because um i'm on a i'm on a grants panel at ua like we do internal we evaluate internal grants and i do feel like um i find myself reviewing these applications and just constantly basically concluding like you're trying to draw causal conclusions from correlational data. Like this is a weakness of the proposal. It's a very common criticism that I have. Um, and so like, yeah, I mean, they, to, to be fair, they're not doing what this paper is doing, which is like explicitly saying like, we know you don't want us to draw causal conclusions, but hear us out. Like we really think we can do it. You know, they're, they're doing more of the like, um, sort of like sneaking it in there or like, you know, uh, implying causal implications without, but, um, yeah, I find myself being like the, the causal inference police in these kinds of settings. I think because, um, because I know that many of the reviewers are not, uh, experimentally trained. So I feel like it's like this, um, this thing that I know about that maybe like other people aren't as well for us, whether it's like, uh, you know, it's my domain or something like that. So definitely I would say like that's the norm in experimental uh, psychology is that we don't allow this. Yeah, and we sort of get this beaten into us from the time that we're undergrads, right? You you get your like first lecture in, um, I don't know, methods as an undergrad and they teach you correlation doesn't allow you to make claims about causation. And then in your grad training, again, you know, there's this like what, um, as this paper that we'll talk about puts it, a, a really a taboo against making, drawing causal conclusions from from non-experimental data. Um, and, and often for good reason. I mean, there there's a reason that this taboo exists, right? Yeah, I think there's a good reason. I mean, um, although I w- like with this topic, I've sort of 
question my own sort of knee-jerk rejection of non-experimental studies that are trying to draw causal influence or sorry, trying to make causal inferences. Um, I do think I do that very quickly and can be dismissive, but I do think it's like extremely common for people to try to like slip causal implications into studies that really cannot address those questions. Um, so I think that it is a big problem. And in some ways it's surprising to me that it's so ubiquitous given how much that seems to be a part of like basic research methods training. Yeah. So in this stuff that you um, read or review, so you mentioned being a, a grants reviewer, um, being on a panel for that, um, I I do some, you know, editing at journals and, and that's typically something that uh, papers get flagged for. So, so how does that look um, when people are doing, you know, what you would call inappropriate uh, causal conclusions from from non-experimental data, like how do they do that actually? Um, so yeah, I have to be careful because I shouldn't be talking about details of specific studies. So I'm trying to think of like a vague example. Um, but I, yeah, it would be the kind of thing where, yeah, they would measure a bunch of variables within a population and look at some kind of like correlation between those variables, but all of the implications would hinge upon a causal relationship between them. Um, so yeah, the implication would be once we know if this thing is correlated with this thing, then we can develop like an intervention and this will have policy implications because we can like just increase this thing and therefore we'll increase this other thing. That's, that's the general like style, I guess. Yeah. So that's, uh, really consistent with what I tend to see as well. So there's a pattern um, where it seems that in the results sections, people are pretty measured right. um, and pretty careful about talking about associations, for example, not using causal language. Mm -hmm. But then you get to the general discussion and they're like, and the implications for policymakers are that you should change X in order to change Y. And it's like, but the data don't show that. Yeah. Right. right. And, and, and then, you know, there might even be another section in the discussion that's like, and the limitation is that the data are only correlational, but you know, it's best we can do whatever. Right. Um. So is, does it like a, a really... Um, I think again, consistent with this idea of of that it's sort of taboo, but that for many questions, we really want to do it. Like the the interesting question is the causal one, and the the answer that you get from just looking at associations isn't particularily interesting, right? But so people do the interesting thing, and then sorry, the uninteresting thing, but they, then they want to draw the interesting conclusions, right? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I don't know what leads to these studies being run in this way. If it's always a situation where the researchers decide like, okay, um, ideally maybe I would do an experiment, but that's totally infeasible in this situation for this reason. So therefore I will, you know, do a, um, cross-sectional correlational study, um, but the, like, they're really interested in the causal question um, because sometimes it really does seem like you wouldn't do it if you weren't – if the causal question weren't there, you know. Um, or, yeah, perhaps they think – I don't know. I don't know what the other reasons could be. I mean, I guess you could have like a model. I think this is, this is language I see people some, use sometimes. They like have a model for how something – could work that is consistent with a correlation between two variables. And so they sort of say that they're testing one aspect of the model, but, um, but yeah, it's not really interesting if you don't have the other pieces there. Yeah. So, and if people are testing the easy part right. and saying, well, it's not inconsistent with our model and therefore you should buy our causal conclusions about other stuff. Right. right. Yeah. So do you ever see people explicitly addressing their desire to draw a causal conclusion from non-experimental data. So like uh, we we read a, a paper by uh, Michael Gross, uh, Julia Rohr, and Felix, I'm just going to guess it's pronounced like Thomas or something like that, called The Taboo Against Explicit Causal Inference in Non-Experimental Psychology. And um, 
a, a lot of the like ideas that we're talking about are, are really from this paper. So they say, you know, basically they make a version of the argument that that I just made that you know people want to talk about the interest in causal conclusion. They're not really licensed to do so by the data, but then they kind of like rears its head again in the general discussion where they feel a little a little less constrained. Um, and what these authors recommend that people do is they actually say, well, you should tackle that head on. You should say, okay, um, I want to draw this causal uh, inference. I, you know, the, these data have certain limitations in allowing me to do that. You know, here's what we would need in order to make a defensible causal inference, right? Like, here's an instrumental variable that might help. Here's a, a diagram um, of the different variables that I think are important in determining this outcome and how they relate to each other. You know, we can test these parts. We can't test the, these other parts of the diagram. Do Do you ever see people doing something like that? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I can't think of a specific instance where I've seen that. Um, and so, yeah, this, the, the gross paper is, um, kind of a revelation to me because I guess I didn't have a full appreciation for how much non-experimental studies vary with respect to the kind of causal evidence they can provide. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, what we're taught in like intro research methods or whatever is, you know, in a, if you have a non-experimental design and you have a relationship between two variables, there's like three possible explanations, right? A is causing B or B is causing A or some third variable C is causing both A and B. Um, but yeah, there are some cases where it's just like completely implausible that B is causing A. It's hard to rule out, I think, third variable um, explanations. But um, but yeah, there are certain, there are some relationships where one direction is much more likely than another. And so you can imagine, you know, um, having more grounds to draw some kind of causal inference. And then, yeah, also methodologies that are more complex than like what I described earlier, which is like measuring a bunch of variables and correlating them um, with each other. And another thing that I hope we talk a little bit about is, so, you know, this idea that like, experiments are the magical solution because experiments are often also not answering the question that we find most interesting or they fall very far short of the kinds of implications that we want to draw. So even if they have this sort of strength when it comes to random assignment, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're often like, there's often a huge disconnect, I think, between the kinds of implications we, um, we describe and what actually was measured. Yeah, so Mickey and I have a, a couple past episodes where we talk about if what we see is the limitations of experiments and which ways in which they're uh, overused, uh, and uh, maybe people draw conclusions from them that they ought not to, um, and the limitations of having experiments is sort of the the kind of go to tool in your toolbox. It, yeah, I'm not the first person to you know, come up with this observation, but it's like the the joke about the drunk looking under light for under like the the light pole for his keys, even though he lost them someplace else because that's where the light is, right? Mm -hmm. And I I feel that like we often we we do that we use the experiment inappropriately, even though it doesn't really answer the question that we want to answer. Like there's lots of interesting questions where you just can't ethically do the experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so do you come across these papers, Yoel? These papers where people are making causal claims from non-experimental data? Yeah. So so like I said, um, it, it's very common to come across papers where they really want to be drawing the causal conclusion. Um, and it sort of the whole motivation for the paper sort of implies that the authors think that there's a causal relationship, but then they don't ever really address that head on. So they report non-experimental data. They don't talk about any of these ways that you could validly make causal inferences from non-experimental data. And they sort of just kind of demonstrate an association. And then in the general discussion are like, presuming it's causal, here's what we should do. Mm -hmm. What I don't see any of this stuff um, about more advanced non-experimental causal inference tools mm -hmm. ever. Like maybe I'm reading the wrong papers, but I feel like I have ne I've never once in psychology seen even like an instrumental variable approach, which 
which I should just like say kind of like briefly what that is. So basically like it's a way of, um, I guess you might call it like a natural experiment. Um, although in, uh, in economics where this is really widely used and in sociology too, there's, there's like kind of more sophisticated, um, statistical techniques for verifying that the instrumental variable is actually a good one and so on. But basically it's like, let's say you were, interested in whether going to this um, this special charter school improves student outcomes. And you can't just compare the charter students to the non-charter students because there's obviously going to be difference, differences in the sort of parents who send their kids to a charter school, right? So it's, you know, being in the charter school is confounded with lots of other things. But let's say the charter school can't admit everybody and let's say they have a lottery. And so you could say, okay, our instrument is going to be whether by lottery they were selected into the charter school or not. Now, if it's a good instrument, you've basically eliminated all sources of variation between those kids other than the, the the thing that you care about, which is whether they went to this charter school or not. So that's like playing the role of almost random assignment. Yeah, exactly. So it's like finding a thing that's like random assignment like. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's a like particularly like kind of clean example of mm-hmm. an instrument. Um, there might be ones that are like a little uh, fuzzier. So it could be, uh, it's uh, this is this is from the gross paper, uh, presuming that it's been shown that in many countries, how close you live to a university um, determines whether you attend one at all. So the people who live close to a university are more likely to go to one. Um, so presuming that that's true, we could use proximity to university as an instrument. Um, so something that determines exogenously, so um, independent of any of the other characteristics, uh, whether somebody of the person, whether they go to university or not. Now, you could say like, well, there's lots of other things that correlate with geography that like might also be important in like whatever outcome you eventually care about. Um, and so in that case, you might like want to test whether that instrumental variable is actually clean, whether it actually is unconfounded with any of the other variables that you care about, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's ways of doing that. Uh, but basically, it's it's a clever way of taking advantage of some sort of natural experiment, some sort of like naturally varying thing that at random makes it more or less likely that people, let's say, do the thing or don't do the thing that you care about the effects of. Mm-hmm. So, like, university attendance, to be clear, would be, like, the presumed causal variable in this, this like, example, right? So we, like, care about the effect that university attendance has on something else. Um, and we want to kind of quasi-randomly assign people to go to university, which we can't really do. So we have to look at some instrument um, that uh, is uncorrelated with the other things we care about, but that uh, is correlated with them going to university or not. Right. Yeah. That's a, it sounds yeah. hard. It sounds hard. And actually in econ, like I think a lot of the art of it is looking for a good instrument. Like it's really hard to do well. Right. And there's like a lot of creativity involved in that. Anyway, I don't think that I ever see that in a psychology paper. Certainly not using that terminology. Definitely not. Yeah. No. Um, Yeah. Like you, I see, I see papers that sort of like dance around the idea of causal inference. Um, but but aren't ever sort of like trying to address this question explicitly. Yeah, yeah. So were you did you get like any sort of training in this stuff? Um in causal inference like formally? Yeah, or in generally in like what to do if your question is about causality but you can't do the experiment. No. I don't think so. Yeah, me neither. No. That seems like a shortcoming. Or maybe, uh, well, I, I don't think I got formal training regardless, but I do think that like a, a norm for tackling these within an experimental paradigm is to do a shitty experiment. <laughs> you know, like, so like, if you can't like traumatize people in the lab, you have them imagine being traumatized, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so when I was reading this, um, this gross paper, um, and, you know, they they talk about this is my term, not theirs, but this like causality creep, 
where it's like you you're most careful in the results and then you're a little less careful in the general discussion then maybe you're like even less careful in like your public statements about the paper and then when somebody else cites the paper to show such and such they're even less careful than you are um at any of those points i think you can fairly apply that to lots of things including these kinds of shitty experiments right where it's like in the results section, they're very clear that it's like when people imagined a time yep. that they were traumatized, and then but then it sort of transmutes and 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 when you read it described in some other papers into our discussion section, it's like traumatized subjects, blah blah blah. Yes, right, right, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, I also think that I mean, I think that this is very strongly incentivized, especially in sort of like the the granting process. Um, but also in, in just like the, the academic publishing process, like there's always this explicit or implicit question of like, why should we care? Um, and so we're all taught if you're writing a good paper, especially if you're writing a good grant application, you have to tell people, you know, why does this matter? How is this going to make a difference? Um, and so, yeah, so people make those leaps. Yeah, so there's definitely that pressure. As somebody who's, you know, writing and summarizing other people's work, there's also just the, it's not exactly a pressure, but a desire to, like, not clutter up your writing with a bunch of, like, yeah. well, I was going to say irrelevant details, or <laughs> they're not really, but it's just really hard to read, like, an introduction where you're like, okay, now let me detour for three sentences to tell you the limitations of this procedure and that they only actually imagined this thing rather than experiencing. Right. Yeah, there's a great, so um, I guess uh, Talia Arconi talks about some of these, like, issues with uh, experiments and with experimental psychology in general, um, or empirical psychology in general, non-descriptive psychology. Um, and he sort of gives examples of, you know, the kinds of descriptions of findings that are commonly given in papers, and then maybe like what would be more accurate. And so the, the first example is like, I don't know, uh, construct A influences construct B, right? And we're talking about like high level things, right? But then like the the description that he says is more accurate is like, you know, such and such specific group of subjects responds such and such a way to this specific video in these circumstances. And they, you know, like rate higher on this scale, you know, um, when provided with these stimuli or something like that. So just like, I mean, exactly like what you're describing, like very cluttered language that doesn't sound fun or exciting to read. It's not an interesting conclusion. And it's also, um, really clunky. Yeah, and I just can't write that in an intro. Right. Like, uh, unless the, the whole point of the paper is here's what so and so did suboptimally and here's how we're going to improve on it. If I'm just like, by the by, this was found, and instead I have to take a detour into, and they were like shown 15 images of black faces and then seating distance was measured or something. It's yeah. just like, you know, it's just unreadable. Yeah. So, like, at some point, you do have to go up to a higher level of abstraction and say, you know, this does this. Right. But then, yeah. Well, that's, like, an interesting point, too. And I think about this when it comes to the sort of um, beating around the bush when it comes to causal conclusions about non-experimental data or or whatever, inadequate data of any kind. There's, like, the question of what is, like, technically correct in your writing, and there's also the separate question of what we actually take away from the findings. And I find myself, like, even sort of, like, drifting into causal space, even when I know that those data are not there. And I think I think that we're just, like, very prone to thinking of these terms. So, actually, I, was, I went to the dentist today, and I was thinking about this finding that... I mean, I don't even know if this is a finding. I've never read the actual study. But at some point, I learned that dentists are the most likely profession to commit suicide. <laughs> Do you also know this? I've heard that, yes. Right. And so I was sitting there in the dentist chair being like, I wonder what's so freaking depressing about this job. <laughs> right. What about this job drives people to end it? Yeah, no, it's just natural to think about it causally. Yeah. How are your teeth, by the way? Um, The hygienist i don't know if she was just trying to like blow smoke up my ass or if she actually believed this but she she said um you're one of these people who flosses a lot aren't you and i don't floss a lot so i was like yes <laughs> <Being> <laughs> <sister."> 
<laughs> she just validated your non-flossing ways. I know. I was like, I'm never going to floss again, which is going to be very, very, very slightly less than how much I floss now. Oh, man. That is so unfair. Like, I always get a mean lecture from them, and I do feel like I don't floss all the time, but I floss frequently, and they're they're always just like, I don't know, a lot of buildup, a lot of buildup. Do you even brush your teeth? <laughs> Bad news, man. Bad news. So, so how does this play out in your own research? Um, so, of the studies you're running, are most of them experiments, or most of them not experiments? For the not experiments, are you trying to draw causal conclusions? Like, what are you doing there? Um, uh, good question. Uh, I think that I fall more in the territory of doing, like, leaning on experiments, and then just not doing experiments that can quite draw the kinds of conclusions that I want to draw. Um, I guess in some ways the idea of abandoning some of those goals completely and trying to do sort of like, we have some projects now that I would say are more descriptive. Um, and I think that's interesting and nice in that uh, I feel like we're not trying as hard to like fit a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. Um, but it's also just like not as conventional a format, you know, so I'm, I'm less sure like what to do with those kinds of papers and how to um, write them in compelling ways and where to send them and things like that. Yeah. Do you feel like you have trouble getting that stuff published? Mm, yeah, I, I would say. Yeah, but I, I'd say the end is low right now. So I don't know if it's that that's my expectation, but um, and my limited experience. But I don't know if I um have enough experience yet to tell yeah i mean so i've the last i don't know three to five years i think my research has taken a turn more towards descriptive um and yeah often it's just like documenting that a, a phenomenon exists wow people think this you know and, and not really yeah um and as far as getting that stuff published, it's been, I would say, moderately difficult. But then I don't I, I don't know if it's been any more difficult than my experimental work. Like, I, th I feel like it's just difficult for me to get stuff published, period. I feel too. <laughs> yeah, I do, no doubt, <laughs> to my subpar qualities as a scientist. I just, like, struggle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time they just come back to me with the same feedback, like, you're a terrible scientist. Yeah, do better. Um, but but where I do find that there's more um, pushback, and, and to be fair, N is low, uh, but applying for funding, where they really don't seem to like descriptive. And, and and they seem to think of theoretical and experimental as being kind of the same thing. So they're like, oh, this seems atheoretical. And it's like, well, but the theories say that this should happen. And it's kind of important to know whether it does or not. Or And it's like, no, no, it's not theoretical enough. Make it more theoretical. We want more mechanism. Absolutely. I've definitely gone through that process before. Like, so, I mean, for NSF, one of their main requirements is... Um, what do they call it? Intellectual merit, which is like, you know, um, basically your theoretical contribution. Um, and I've gone through this like process before of proposing, uh, like a study that I think, uh, basically is important at a descriptive level, which in some ways I think is like what we should be striving for because you don't have to sort of like you don't have to draw as many connections. Like if you're just saying like the data from this study are going to be interesting because you would want to look at the data and that would be informative. Um, then you don't have to worry as much about like all of these implications and leaps and things like that. Um, but yeah, that seems to be the feedback is like, yeah, how are you advancing theory? And um, yeah. Yeah. How are you like connecting this to this broader framework that now we're going to, be able to understand these constructs in a new way or something like that. Um, yeah, they don't seem to like that. You know, to be fair, you can do a lot of very bad and boring descriptive work. This is an argument that I've had with, yeah, former guest Paul Bloom, who uh, I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind that I out him as saying that he he was like, I hate descriptive research. I think it's terrible. And, and I was like, 
kind of like, what do you mean? And it turns out what he had in mind is that you just like go and you sort of randomly observe some shit and you write down what you see. And yeah, I like, I, that doesn't, that doesn't seem very useful, but I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's also very easy to do a lot of very bad experimental research that doesn't really tell you anything that just like provides the illusion of insight. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, one of, one of the most famous studies in social psychology, the the Milgram study, is descriptive finding, right? Um, and I think that's a useful example because, I mean, I guess you could argue that um, the thing that's surprising about it, um, so like the proportion of people who will shock someone at a really high level because simply because they're told to do so um, by an authority figure, it's... It's surprising because we have an intuition about how low that number would be. But that is a power of descriptive findings generally, is that, yeah, we can demonstrate that things happen that people wouldn't guess would happen. Exactly. Like, it does depend. The impact of that study, like you said, exactly, depends on it being surprising, right? We have this prior that the number is is real low, and then it's much higher, right? So I guess... You know, if you were to say, like, well, I don't like research that's boring, then yeah, I mean, I'm 100% on board with that. But I think lots of descriptive findings can be super surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, I mean, okay, so I'm, like, definitely, like, not comparing myself to Milgram or anything like that. Um, but, so, <laughs> but just as an illustration, <laughs> um uh, some of my work with um, with Sidney Scott and Paul Rosen and other people has looked at people's attitudes about genetically engineered food um, or GMOs, and that's something where you know people really tend to dislike them and think they're dangerous and bad, um, and they don't tend to listen to the scientific consensus, which is they're fine. And there's been a lot of efforts made to understand why or, like, does exposing people to, like, more information about what scientists think change their minds? No. And we just went and asked people kind of descriptively, well, you know, for any balance of risks and benefits, do you think that this would be okay? And there's lots of people that say no. They're like, regardless of anything you tell me about risks and benefits, I don't think it's okay. Now, do I think they mean that literally? No, they don't. But they're they're signaling something with that. And they're signaling, I would say, an insensitivity to arguments about evidence, right? They think it's bad for reasons that don't really have to do with stuff that scientists tell you. And that is purely descriptive, right? But I think it is kind of useful to know if people feel that way. Like, right. it, it would maybe change your behavior. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things where I think I would just be curious to know, yeah, the like distribution of people's um, responses to to scales or, um, yeah, how yeah how people would respond to like a trade off questions and things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of I think I thought I think there's a lot of interesting descriptive research questions out there that have not been tackled because people avoid that those kinds of questions because they think they can't get published or they can't get funding, which might be true. I feel like you you are nowhere close to done with that beer, but I need to, I need to grab another one and then um, maybe we can tackle this, uh, this Nobel prize paper.
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, Mickey and I are still checking the DMs and the mentions on that account. Um, so that's a good way to get in touch. If you'd rather email us, it shows email addresses fourbeerspod at gmail.com. And that will go to all three of us. Uh, finally, our website is fourbeers.com. Uh, you can listen to any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there. As well, if you're enjoying the show, please just take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, that just helps other people find the show, and we also like reading reviews. Um, Alexa, have I left anything out? That sounds good. Sweet. Um, I assume you're still drinking the same beer? Yep, I'm going to stick to this one. <laughs> you're not. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to open a second 32-ounce beer. A six-pack of those 32-ounce beers <laughs> for what you really just want to fucking lost weekend. Um, I have a new beer because my, my previous one was a mere a puny 12 ounces. <laughs> so I'm going to – let me let me find it here. Uh, so this is from the same uh, brewery, uh, L'Espace Public. And this is an Attaque Galactique. I think I've had this before. It's an IPA. I remember it being quite good. I got to say the last one, this like the sour and the bitter and the salty thing, not a not a good combination. Disappointing. I hope this one is better. Well, let's see. Mm. Yep, that's much better. Great. Okay, great. Yeah, I really got to. So just as a service to listeners, um, I, I do need to like branch out to like more local breweries. Um, I, so far, I've just been buying what's at the grocery store literally down the street but i found this like uh house of beers that's uh, a little further away and they have lots of interesting looking things so i've been meaning to make a stop there that's exciting well now that we're gonna create this account i feel like i'm gonna be i'm gonna have to be on my game yeah we're gonna be judged by a bunch of like beer snobs and on tap right yeah. like <laughs> it's <laughs> it's some heavy shit, man. I hope you're ready. I mean, I hear they're savage. We're just going to get fucking trolled. Yeah, I'm going to be like, oh, I don't really like Belgian beers. And they're just going to be like, canceled. You're going to drink that. That's right. This is cancel culture. <laughs> uh, the internet. Best place. Um, okay. Uh, Alexa, anything else you wanted to mention before we get, get back into it? Um, nope. I'm ready. Great. Uh, so, yeah, like like I mentioned at the top, uh, we wanted to talk about a paper that was kind of floating around uh, recently. I encountered it in the last like few weeks uh, by uh, Rablin and Oswald. Uh, this is from 2008. Uh, the name of the paper is Mortality in Immortality, colon, the Nobel Prize as an Experiment into the Effect of Status upon Longevity. This is in the Journal of Health Economics. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, so the basic idea of this paper um, is that there's some theorizing that says higher status leads to longer longevity. Um, I guess this has been looked at experimentally in animals. Obviously, in people, you can't do this and you need to do it um, using non-experimental data, right? You can't randomly assign somebody to be higher status or not. Um, and so what they what they say is, well, winning the Nobel Prize confers status um, as, as well as money. Um, and what we want to do is use this as um, a status manipulation. So can we look for differences between Nobel winners and non-Nobel winners in lifespan? Um, and they do this using a few different techniques, and they estimate that winning a Nobel indeed confers an extra one to two years of lifespan. So um, I, I'm going to like kind of pull these, I'm going to make these numbers approximate, but let's say non-Nobel winners in their sample would have lived to be like an average of like 75. Nobel win winners might live an average to be an average of like 76, 76 and a half, 77, something like that. Yeah, I think that's about right. Right. No, just Those are just obviously raw numbers. Okay. And so then the challenge is how do you um, demonstrate a causal relationship, obviously, in these uh, non-experimental data. Uh, so, Alexa, I'm ready to answer your questions about how they did this. I think this would be a fun to do as a Q&A. <laughs> okay, well, if that's like, let's say that that's all I knew about a paper, right? So I know like the finding is, um, so they are comparing Nobel winners 
to Nobel nominees. Is that is this right? Yeah. So right. So first, obviously, you got to say like, well, compared to who, right? right. And you got to find a similar population to to compare it to. So kind of cleverly, they say, well, what about the people who are nominated and didn't win? Right. Right. So those are those people are roughly comparable. Um, let's use them as our controls, if you will, mm-hmm. um, to look at the causal effects of winning the Nobel. Right. So first of all, like I want to say as a side note, I think if we're talking about like instruments um, or using this language, to me, that sounds like uh, in some ways quite a good instrument because I suspect that the difference between being nominated and winning the Nobel Prize is close to random in terms of like the decision-making process. Um, So I was impressed by that. My first question, of course, would be something like, yeah, maybe there are things that distinguish people who win from people who are nominated. Um, And so like, how do they ensure that, um, yeah, that there's not some pre-existing dinner, sorry, uh, pre-existing difference between winners and nominees? Right. So, so one thing that you might worry about, um, which is along these lines, although not exactly what you said, is that if you live longer, you have more opportunities to win a Nobel Prize. So just by dint of making it to 75, you have more bites at the apple. Somebody who uh, dies at 50, um, just by not having been around those extra years, didn't have the, because they're not given posthumously, didn't have the opportunity to win one, right? So that's the first thing I think that you want to look at as far as like differences between winners and non-winners is that winners might just mechanically uh, be older uh, because people who died young don't make it into the winner pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one thing that they do that's, that's sort of clever to, to get around that is they take this matching approach where they say, okay, we have a winner. Now we want to match them with a non-winner who's about as old as they are. So like backwards looking, you know, what is, what was that winner's date of birth? We're going to look for a non-winner that's a, that approximately is the same age. And then we're going to look forwards to see now following those individuals that are now matched at their age where they won or didn't win, uh, which one lives longer. So that's a way of getting around the problem of when you're older, you have more opportunities to win. Right. You're with me on that analysis so far? Yep, I'm with you so far. Yeah. So so, so I could see you, you taking a breath here. But so in that analysis, they do find um, that uh, the winners live longer than the matched non-winners, but that's actually not a significant uh-huh. difference. Now you look like you have a question. <laughs> well, I kind of have like, returning to your introduction of this paper i'm i'm sort of wondering what the context is in which this paper started floating around twitter um i don't know i think people just thought it was fun it wasn't like about causal inference or anything oh, okay. like that yeah so no i think a, it was, was just a like finding that was like capturing people yeah attention. exactly people just thought it was cool uh-huh right which i mean yeah this is like a lot cooler than any experiment you could do I mean, there's. I mean, you just couldn't, right? If you're looking at longevity, that is just like not possible to do the experiment, right? So, I guess like I'm also wondering, do you buy the causal effect? <sighs> no, actually, not really. I mean, so I buy that status has some health benefits. Mm-hmm. Even aside from the financial kind of correlates of being higher status, I do think it's plausible that you you know if you're liked and respected by your peers, then you're kind of a more chill, relaxed, happier person, uh-huh. and that has some benefits for your health. Uh-huh. I'm not super convinced that being the level of scientist who wins a Nobel versus just the level of scientist who's nominated for a Nobel. Just to be clear, like 
nobody I know is in either pool, right? Yeah. Like, so to me, those, those people are like, they're way more successful than me or anybody I know, right? And then that there's then an additional boost to having won versus to having been a person who's considered right. to be like in the running. Right. I mean, maybe I could be convinced, but it doesn't seem intuitively plausible to me. Right. And it's a big difference, right? So at least the mean difference being what it, whatever it is, like 1.5 years or something like that, is like, there's a lot of things uh, that I imagine influence longevity. So for something to make like a one and a half year difference, it would have to just be like, that, that seems like a massive effect on longevity to me. Yeah, although interestingly, it's smaller than the effect, the negative effect on longevity of uh, being a chemist versus a physicist. <laughs> the chemists and the dentists. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's all suicide. Um, yeah, it just uh, it just seems weird, right? Like, why is they 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 have no theory for it whatsoever? But yeah, chemists live like I don't know two years less than physicists do, and why should that be? Yeah, beats beats me. So, so okay. So this this kind of matching analysis still has you know some problems of they're they're only being matched on age. What if there's something else going on? Um, and so what they what they do as their next analysis is they um, they do a like a survival analysis, or it's it's called a, um, a hazards model uh, sometimes, in which the model just looks at like at every time point, you know, is the person alive or dead, alive or dead, alive or dead. In this this uh, case, I imagine they did it like year by year. Although actually, I didn't exactly see where they where they outlined what the what the time splitting was. Um, and that allows you to put in a bunch of covariates, like, um, you know, what nation is the person in? Um, what uh, field is he in? Because it was all men in this sample. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, I mean, I know it's from like 1901 to 1950. So like, I shouldn't be surprised. But there was what, like a sample of, there were 532 people who came up in the like, um, people who won chemistry or physics Nobel Prizes between 1901 and 1950. Oh, wait, one or were nominated. And they were like, yeah, there were four women in there, so we just got rid of them. Just kicked them out. <laughs> that's brutal. Yeah, that's rough, yeah. man. But anyways, there's just yes, like, yeah. Men. Yeah, there's just not enough women in there. Um, right, so you can you can put in covariates um, to hopefully control for some of these differences between different individuals. And there they do find a significant um, effect of being a Nobel Prize winner such that if you win the Nobel um, in any given year, you're, what is it, 21% less likely to die is how I interpret these numbers. Um, so, you know, those the, the 95% CI on that ranges from, you know, negative 0.37 to... Uh, sorry, negative 37 to negative 0.7. So actually like pretty, pretty close to zero, but, but excluding zero, right? Um, so it looks like with the stuff that they were able to control for that, that doesn't eliminate the effect. Now, one question I had that they don't, really seem to talk about is could there be unmeasured confounds in here that have to do with health? In other words, you know, you said earlier, well, my assumption would be that the um, the pool of non-winners but nominated versus winners shouldn't differ substantially. But but what if that isn't true? Yeah, right. Right. So, right. Like, what if being in somewhat better health uh, allows you to be more productive, and that does that does raise your probability of winning the Nobel versus just being nominated? I guess my thinking and saying like this would probably be random at this point would be was was that like realistically the quality of a project done by somebody who wins the Nobel Prize versus is nominated. Um, 
I mean, I think that it's really hard to evaluate the quality of these kinds of projects anyways. And, um, and yeah, I think that like one thing that probably differentiates people who win from people who are nominated is like, did you discover a thing or did you not discover a thing? You know, like the results of an experiment that are beyond your control. So, so I guess like my intuition is that the quality of the science is probably like not dramatically different or there wouldn't be a lot of like consensus about the difference between winners and nominees. However, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there wouldn't, I can't imagine that there would be differences between who people select from a pool to win and who they don't select so like, okay, this is going to be a silly example, but I think it's sort of in line with what you're suggesting. So like, what if people are like, that guy's taller. He looks like a, he looks like a powerful, you know, groundbreaking dude. Like he's the one, you know? And what if like taller people are also, uh, live longer, like things like that doesn't, that doesn't seem crazy to me that that could be happening. Yeah, so it wouldn't be about the quality of the science, but it might be about some like biasing effect of the person's mm-hmm. physical characteristics on their on on the prize committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't they don't talk about they don't I I don't think they really consider that class of alternatives mm-hmm. that I saw. I don't know if you caught anything like that. No. I mean, to be fair, if somebody wrote a paper that was like taller people live longer, I'd be like, fuck off. <laughs> so <laughs> right. like, it's like one of those situations where you're like, Oh, you know, I can come up with so many plausible alternative explanations for that. But if they were put forward as the main explanation, I would be um, very skeptical. So, you know, yeah. Like all of a sudden we're like very credulous of things that we would otherwise be like side eyeing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah, but you know what? I think that, I think that's okay. I think it's okay to say, you know, there there's these possibly outlandish alternatives, but you should at least address them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I mean, in this case, it seems like the evidence is not particularly strong anyway. Um, like in one version of the analysis, the effect is not significant. Like, um, uh, yeah, I don't find it so compelling, even though actually I do the the sort of like model that you proposed or the idea that like status confers some kind of well-being benefit and that could be connected to health in some way seems somewhat plausible to me yeah that that doesn't seem crazy um and you know i don't know this work well but there's definitely work in non-human animals where you can experimentally manipulate where the where the animal is in the hierarchy and that I think has found these effects that being higher up on the hierarchy is, but, but, but also it's like, okay, those monkeys are fucking terrible to each other, you know? Mm. So I don't know how much there now we have the problem of extrapolating from the experiment again, right? Like, is that really a useful analog for human society? Yeah. Right. I have a, a question that's just a question about your intuition. So in the paper, they sort of like dismiss the idea that the money has anything to do with it. Um, so I think they do an analysis where they look at whether the amount of money is related to longevity. And they say that, that, um, that those two things are not related. I wasn't totally sure if I was missing something. So they talk about the real value of the prize. I don't know if the real value is literally the monetary value or if it incorporates inflation in some way. That's just economists speak for inflation adjusted. Ah, uh, okay, that's relevant. Um, so they so they didn't adjust for inflation, and they found no relationship between the monetary value and longevity. Yeah, although I mean, I th- I do think that was clever. So what they took advantage of is that accounting for inflation. Uh, the real value of the prize varied over the years, right? So it's like inflation, inflation, inflation. Presumably, they haven't adjusted the value of the prize upwards for a while. So in real terms, it's actually worth less than it was 20 years ago. And now they're like, oh, we should raise the value of the prize because inflation. It's not like automatically indexed to inflation, I guess. So And and then now all of a sudden, it's worth more, right? And then inflation, 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 it's sort of, sort of like, you know, becomes worth, le- worth less over time. I mean, it's probably not that regular. But the point is it varies in real 
real terms over time. And they're like, okay, we can compute the real value, the inflation adjusted value of the prize uh, for every recipient. We can see is that related uh, to longevity and it's not. I don't know about, you know, it might just be that a big enough chunk of money raises your life expectancy and that like then doubling the size of that chunk of money doesn't do much, right? It could be like a threshold function. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, but arguing against myself, like I would think that most people who are nominated for the prize are already pretty well compensated. They're like star scientists, yeah. right? They're going to be getting paid well. Yeah, like they're getting paid like probably like many thousands of dollars to give talks and things like that, I imagine at that point. I would think, although maybe not in 1920, you know, maybe they were like toiling in obscurity. Yeah, maybe. Okay, but I want to I want to know a more basic question, which is like, um, so the the paper is implying that it's a prestige that's at least valuable to your longevity and not the monetary compensation. But would you rather have a Nobel Prize in zero dollars or would you rather have they said like one to one point five million dollars is the prize? Yeah, that's right. So would you rather have. Yeah, alternatively, one to one point five. Let's say, let's go ham and say one point five million dollars, but no prize. Wow, that's a great. With is this an alternative reality in which I've done some work that actually merits a Nobel, <laughs> or are they just going to like give me a Nobel? For it? I considered this, and like I guess it has to be a situation where you've done something. Yeah, like yeah, you have to have done some right. some worthy stuff. They wouldn't just randomly pick my, you know, uh, the paper I wrote as a grad student and give me a Nobel for it. it <laughs> Your be, dissertation I, research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, let me think about that and give you an honest answer to the question. I think I would rather have the Nobel, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. I feel like a million, million and a half dollars is a lot of money, but it's not a completely life-changing amount of money. Yeah. If you're like 10 million, then I think I would take the money. Okay. But in that range, I actually, I feel like I would make it back and like being able to give talks and stuff. Yeah, that's the thing is like, if you have the Nobel Prize, then you can make more money. You could say you could say that's boring. And so we're going to stipulate I'm not allowed to monetize it. So. Right, 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 right. Yes. I, I still think, I think even if I'm not allowed to monetize it, I think I still would want the Nobel. Like how many people have won a Nobel in psychology? It's like mm-hmm. two, I think, unless I'm leaving somebody out. You could be right. I don't know the answer at all. Yeah, I think it's two. Maybe I'm forgetting somebody. If so, sorry, but they're probably long dead. Uh, what about you? What would your answer be? Yeah, I also think it would be winning the Nobel Prize. Like winning the prize. Um, I don't know. Partly partly it's because, um, I don't know, I'm already sort of like conflicted about distribution of wealth questions and so like i don't i don't feel like i need to have a bunch more money like i think that would like um i would feel guilty about having that money um but also yeah i mean i think it would be cool to be a nobel prize winner for sure also apparently you get to go to a cool party oh yeah they throw in an awesome party although i wonder during COVID, did you have to do all this over Zoom? That would be so oh my sad. God, that would be so sad. <laughs> right? It's not like you're ever going to win another one. It's your one chance to have a cool party mm-hmm. taken from you. So, so overall, like, where do you land on this? Like, has any of this, like, reading this stuff, like, changed how you think about research? How you m- might do your own research? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, um. I think that for me, it's blurred the line between the kinds of conclusions we can draw from experimental research and non-experimental research. Like, it it reminds me of the limitations on the conclusions we draw from experimental research, which we're often, like, very quick to make causal conclusions. But, yeah, those, those causal conclusions are just often pretty divorced from what was actually done. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I just, like it makes me also want to know more about methodologically how you can sort of establish this, like these kinds of conclusions from non-experimental work. It, it makes it, yeah, I, I learned that dichotomy um, when I was first learning about research methods, this idea, like there's experiments and there's correlational studies and there's fundamental, there's a fundamental difference in the kinds of conclusions you can draw. And that just seems, it seems like more like a continuum now. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how I'm feeling about it as well now. And I, I am on sabbatical until next summer. And so I'm thinking that it might be a good time to learn more about this stuff, you know? Are you going to try to draw some causal conclusions from some non-experiments? Or are you just going to do cool, ask people really fascinating questions and report the results? <laughs> I come up with really amazing descriptive questions. Uh, no, I mean, we have been... Uh, so uh, my student Nina and I are working on um, some, some data from Twitter where we're looking at uh, politicians' tweets. And there it's a, a great example of you know, we, we want to draw in some cases, causal conclusions, like does the language they use affect something like how much they're retweeted? Mm -hmm. Um, but these are obviously all observational data. And so there's actually stuff that, you know, I've been learning in the last couple months about how to do that sort of stuff properly that of course I was not taught in grad school at all. And now I'm just trying to learn on the fly basically. Mm -hmm. I also have a new grad student who, um, is really interested in, descriptive research um and also uh qualitative research so i've been trying to learn more about that i really don't know much about that at all um but to me it sounds really fun to just like ask like do some interviews with people and then like report on the results and be like okay i think i learned something from these conversations like Wow. Okay, next episode, topic about which we know even less. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All about qualitative research. Paul Bloom will be like, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, garbage. Straight <laughs> garbage. <laughs>